0: Well, the sermon text is in the Gospel of Mark today, chapter 1. Our scripture reading is found in the book of the prophet Daniel. Daniel chapter 2. And verses 31 to 45. Again, our scripture reading for today is Daniel chapter 2. Verses 31 to 45. This is the word of the Lord. You saw, O king, and behold, a great image. This image, mighty and of exceeding brightness, stood before you, and its appearance was frightening. The head of this image was of fine gold, its chest and arms of silver its middle and thighs of bronze, its legs of iron, its feet partly of iron and partly of clay. As you looked, a stone was cut out by no human hand, and it struck the image on its feet of iron and clay and broke them in pieces. Then the iron, the clay, the bronze, the silver, and the gold all together were broken in pieces and became like chaff of the summer threshing floors. And the wind carried them away, so that not a trace of them could be found. But the stone that struck the image became a great mountain, and filled the whole earth. This was the dream. Now we will tell the king of its interpretation. You, O king, the king of kings, to whom the God of heaven has given the kingdom, the power, and the might, and the glory, and into whose hand he has given wherever they dwell, the children of man, the beast of the fields, and the birds of the heavens, making you rule over them. You are the head of gold. Another kingdom inferior to you shall arise after you, and yet a third kingdom of bronze which shall rule over all the earth. And there shall be a fourth kingdom, strong as iron, because iron breaks to pieces and shatters all things. As you saw, the iron mixed with soft clay, so they will mix with one another in marriage, but they will not hold together, just as iron does not mix with clay. And in the days of those kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom that shall never be destroyed, nor shall the kingdom be left to another people. It shall break in pieces all these kingdoms and bring them to an end and it shall stand forever. Just as you saw that a stone was cut from a mountain by no human hand, and that it broke in pieces the iron, the bronze, the clay, the silver, and the gold, a great God has made known to the king what shall be after this. The dream is certain, and its interpretation sure. Please turn now to the sermon text Mark chapter 1, the sermon text is verses 14 and 15, but we'll begin reading once again at verse 1. Mark chapter 1, verses 14 and 15, but beginning at verse 1. The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, In those days, Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. And when he came up out of the water, immediately he saw the heavens being torn open and the Spirit descending on him like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, You are my beloved Son. With you I am well pleased. The Spirit immediately drove him out into the wilderness And he was in the wilderness 40 days, being tempted by Satan. And he was with the wild animals, and the angels were ministering to him. Now after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee, proclaiming the gospel of God and saying, The time is fulfilled, and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent, and believe in the gospel. Thus far the reading of God's word, let us now pray his blessing upon its preaching. Most gracious Heavenly Father, this is your word, inspired by your Holy Spirit. And we are your people, called and regenerated by that same Holy Spirit. We ask, O Lord, that you would now send your Holy Spirit to illumine our hearts and minds that we might understand and apply your word. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. The Bible teaches in many places, brothers and sisters, that God is a king. And it teaches that God is a king in two senses. First, he is king over all creation. And he is king over all creation by virtue of being its creator and its sustainer. And we could call this his general kingship if we wanted to. But he is also a king in a particular way. And this is by virtue of his covenants. He is a king in a special way over his covenant people who are a set-apart people. Namely, Israel or the church. The one assembly of his people. That's what church means. So we could call that his special kingship, which God enjoys by right of purchase or redemption. For that is what the word redemption means. We have been bought. In the words of Moses at Exodus 19, we are told this, You yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians, and how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now, therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples. For all the earth is mine and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. Brothers and sisters, there is a problem as we try to grapple with God's kingship over either his people or over his world. And that is because of what we see with our eyes all around us in the church and the world every day. And that is the lawlessness and the wickedness that infect his dominions, his dominion of the church and his dominion of the world. There's a tension then between what the Bible teaches and what we see in the world and in the church. This tension was both keenly felt and openly acknowledged by the prophets who gave us the scriptures of the Old Testament. If God is king, Not only over his people, but also over the entire world. How can God be exercising his kingship, his lordship, over either of them, when both are in such a state? And how long will he permit this state of wickedness to prevail in both the church and in the world? Brothers and sisters, that is a refrain in the Old Testament. Perhaps you'll be familiar with the phrase, How long, O Lord? Voiced so many times throughout the Old Testament by his people. How long, O Lord? That is, how long shall things go on like this? The scriptures dealt with this tension by means of promises. By means of prophecies. You see, God would one day come into the world to reassert his kingly rights. And forever establish his direct personal rule over the heavens and over the entire earth, delivering his people and destroying the wicked in the process. I divided today's sermon into three parts. The first I am calling the coming of the kingdom, the second, thy kingdom come, thy will be done, and the third, the gospel of God. Number one, the coming of the kingdom. Number two, thy kingdom come, thy will be done. And the third, the gospel of God. So part one, the coming of the kingdom. Let's consider this phrase we find in our text today. The time is fulfilled. The word in Greek there for time is kairos, and it communicates Not progressive time, but a critical or opportune moment. But what critical opportune moment is being referred to? What critical moment has been fulfilled? Well, the time appointed by God for the fulfillment of his promises. The time to which the Old Testament was pointing. The eschatological time has come. That is the time, brothers and sisters, that has been fulfilled. What the Jews had hoped for for centuries has come about with the arrival of Jesus of Nazareth. God's kingdom, we are told, has finally come. Now there were in fact two main strands of Jewish expectation and hope with regard to the coming of the kingdom of God. First, As we discussed at the beginning, God will come personally. God will come to earth personally to reassert his royal claims and his prerogatives over this world. Over this world in general, but also over his set-apart people in particular. And this was in scripture called the great and terrible day of the Lord. On that day, God would come personally to save but also to judge. Second, the second main strand of Jewish expectation, there would be a coming Messiah who would be the Lord's anointed. That's what the word Messiah means, the Lord's anointed. He would be a human king, and he would be David's greatest son. And he would also come one day to save Israel and to defeat and to judge the wicked. This second strand of thought included the idea of a a new age. A new age that would come. And in fact, that's what it was called. The age to come. And that's what the coming of the Messiah would inaugurate. So God himself was coming with the day of the Lord. And the Messiah was expected to come too. To bring in the age to come. And to this point, where we have just reached together with the coming of the Lord himself and the coming of his Messiah, Jewish expectation accurately matched what the Old Testament teaches. The Old Testament contains promises and prophecies that God was coming as king to save, to judge, and to conquer and that the Lord's anointed, the Messiah, was coming as king to save, to judge, and to conquer. We need to understand that much before we can proceed to try to comprehend these really complementary, but apparently paradoxical statements of our Lord in our text today. The time is fulfilled, and the kingdom of God is at hand. Let's examine that language. Fulfilled implies accomplishment, and the verb there is in the perfect tense. But at hand, this other phrase, although it does imply something very near to us, the phrase at hand still communicates something yet to be accomplished. Before we can wrestle with that paradox, we need to be sure that we have this basic understanding. Again, that in Jewish eschatology, God was coming to judge and to deliver, and the Messiah, the Lord's anointed, was coming to judge and to deliver. But how these two strands of promise and prophecy actually worked together was not made obvious to the people of God of old, in the Old Testament. And so, human sin in interpretation, in addition to already limited capacity of human interpreters, led to some misconceptions creeping into Jewish expectation regarding the coming of the kingdom. So let's focus for a moment now on two misconceptions that the Jews had about the coming of the kingdom. First, they conceived of the coming kingdom in crass political terms. Of course, moral concerns were present in that the law of Moses would be established, as it were, as the law of the land, but the focus was that the heathen emperors and the legions of rome would be crushed they expected the kingdom of god and of his christ his anointed to be a kingdom of this world a kingdom that would come as it's put in the king james version a kingdom that would come in with observation excuse me a kingdom that would come with observation so they anticipated a kingdom that would in fact summon israel to arms In order to overcome the wicked by the edge of the sword. In short, they were looking for a son of David who would be like David. He would be a man of action. He would be a man of war and a man of blood. So the arrival of the Messiah they were expecting, the coming of the kingdom they had hoped for, would be a call unto God's people to fight. Matthew Matthew Henry says this, They fondly expected the Messiah to appear in external pomp and power, not only to free the Jewish nation from the Roman yoke, but to make it have dominion over all its neighbors, and therefore thought, when that kingdom of God was at hand, they must prepare for war and for victory and preferment and great things in the world. In fact, the Jews were, you could call it, cherry-picking passages from the Old Testament. They preferred to latch onto only those glorious prophecies that emphasized a conquering Messiah. And in fact, overlooking those passages that suggested that the Messiah would also come to suffer. This way of thinking was indulged in, not only by the Pharisees and others of Jesus' day, but also by Jesus' own disciples and even by John the Baptist. That's why when John the Baptist found himself imprisoned by the wicked, he was puzzled. He had believed that Jesus was the Lord's anointed, but why wasn't Jesus overthrowing the Romans and Herod? Why wasn't he treading them underfoot and establishing his throne and power? And So he even sent messages Messengers, excuse me, to Jesus to ask him. He asked Jesus by these messages, Are you the one who is to come? Or shall we look for another? This misconception of the coming of the kingdom was in fact tied to yet another misconception. The Jews of Jesus' generation, all of them, read the Old Testament as teaching that the coming of the kingdom would occur all at once. One way we can see that is the different ways that the Baptist and our Lord proclaimed the coming of the kingdom. Let's consider their proclamations about the coming of the kingdom to see this difference. In Matthew's account, we would read this. In those days, John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And that was it. For John the Baptist, the kingdom simply was at hand. But our Lord said something different in our text in Mark. He not only says, like John, that the kingdom is at hand. He also says, as we can see, that the time has been fulfilled. John doesn't say anything about this fulfillment. John's remarks reflect reflect the fact that the Lord had not yet revealed himself. For John, the kingdom was holy yet to come, and it was therefore simply, as he put it, at hand. When the Lord Jesus Christ appears, that's when things change. Now we learn that the time is fulfilled, and it's fulfilled with Jesus of Nazareth's arrival. As promised, God has come in the appearance of Jesus, and the Messiah has come in his appearance as well. But how could the promised time be both fulfilled and yet at hand? No doubt the two expressions must be understood as being connected with each other. We must do justice to both of these ideas. The kingdom of God has come, and the kingdom of God is coming. It has arrived, Jesus proclaims, and yet he also says it remains at hand. Our Lord speaks this way because the coming of the kingdom is, in fact, through the light of the New Testament, we know it. The coming of the kingdom is a two-staged affair. The kingdom of God has arrived with the appearance on the scene of the Lord Jesus Christ, but the kingdom of God is not yet consummated. You can think of it in this way. The kingdom of God, its coming, is a two-stage affair because the coming of the king is a two-stage affair. The king has come, so the time is fulfilled. And yet the king will come again, so the kingdom is, in a very real sense, still at hand. The kingdom has both come and is still to come because, brothers and sisters, Jesus has come and he is to come again. And all that time as well, in between and including these two comings of the divine and anointed king, all that time in between as well is in fact the day of the Lord. When God separates the just from the wicked, This is because this sifting aspect of the day of the Lord, dividing the wicked from the just, has in a a very real, real way already begun. The day of the Lord has begun with this gospel call in our text. It has begun with this accompanying proclamation, repent and believe the gospel. Those who repent and believe are now and then being gathered into his garners, into his church. Those who are not coming to the Lord in faith and repentance, they are being bound into sheaves, sheaves of tares, and are being prepared for fire. The sheep are now already being separated from the goats, and are being washed by Christ as with fuller's soap, and refined with his refiner's fire. So you can think of the two comings of the Lord Jesus Christ as bookends. Between these bookends, between and including the first and second comings of the Lord Jesus Christ, fall all of the Old Testament prophecies and promises regarding the coming of the kingdom of God, including the day of the Lord's great wrath. As Paul says in Romans chapter 1, and verse 18, Paul writes, The wrath of God is revealed. Now. Not just at the last day. The wrath of God is revealed. But how is it that the prophets didn't understand this? How is it that they, and John the Baptist, the greatest in the line of Old Testament prophets, we were told, how is it that none of these prophets perceived this, that the day of the Lord was not a single literal day, even though there will be ultimately one last day. The day of the Lord was not a single literal day. And how did they not perceive that the coming of the king and of the kingdom would in fact involve two installments, two stages? Well, it is simply because of where they stood. It is because of their perspective. From where they were standing in history, in redemptive history, the two separated things looked like one big thing. Turn with me, for example, to Malachi chapter 3. Please turn in your Bibles to Malachi chapter 3. Malachi chapter 3, the last, the last writing prophet of the Old Testament. John, of course, as we know, was the last prophet of the Old Testament, as it were. Malachi is the last writing prophet. And we'll look at the first five verses, the beginning of the fifth verse, of chapter 3 of his book. Malachi three one. Behold, I send my messenger, and he will prepare the way before me. And he will purify the sons of Levi and refine them like gold and silver, and they will bring offerings in righteousness to the Lord. Then the offerings of Judah and Jerusalem will be pleasing to the Lord as in the days of old and as in former years. Then I will draw near to you for judgment. I will be a swift witness against the sorcerers, against the adulterers, against those who swear falsely, against those who oppress the hired worker in his wages, the widow and the fatherless, against those who thrust aside the sojourner. And do not fear me, says the Lord of hosts. The coming of the Lord, preceded by his messenger, John the Baptist, this coming messenger will come to his temple. We know that this part of the prophecy is fulfilled by Christ at his first coming. What Malachi did not fully realize, nor did the Jews of Jesus' day, was that verse 5 would be fulfilled in the fullest sense only at the Messiah's second coming. We are told in the New Testament that Jesus did not come to judge during his earthly ministry. But we are also told in the same New Testament that after his ascension and exaltation, Judgment had been committed to him by the Father. In the words of Gerhardus Voss, it must be admitted that the Old Testament does not distinguish between the several stages in the fulfillment of the promises regarding the kingdom, but looks upon its coming as an undivided whole. John the Baptist also seems to have occupied this Old Testament standpoint. This, however, was due to the peculiar character of prophecy in general, in which there is a certain lack of perspective. This lack of a full or clear perspective, what we could call the prophetic perspective, works a little like this. Have you ever been driving down the highway and you observe a range of mountains, with mountain peaks off in the distance, And when you first see them, they appear to be the same range of hills. The peaks actually appear to be right next to each other. But as you draw closer to those mountains, there comes a point when you realize that these mountains are actually separated from one another by a great distance. That's what happened with the Old Testament prophecies about the events of the day of the Lord, about the coming of the kingdom, and about the coming of the Lord's anointed king. From their perspective, they thought that all the events being described to them by the Holy Spirit were but one undivided event, because that's the way it appeared to them in their place in redemptive history. From their perspective, as they were far removed from the events themselves. So it fell to Christ and to the apostles to teach us that the two peaks of the one mountain range, that is, the two phases of the coming divine king's work, Prophesied of in the Old Testament were actually separated by many generations. The coming of the Christ to suffer for sin, that is his coming in his humiliation, and the coming of Christ to conquer his coming in his exaltation were actually separated by many generations. And that's why, brothers and sisters, we need the, o- the New Testament to interpret the Old Testament. Otherwise, we would continue to make the same interpretive mistakes that the Jews of Jesus' day did. The promised Lord has come. He has now, the Bible tells us, ascended his throne. He has, in fact, already begun his reign, as Hebrew 2 puts it. At present, we do not yet see everything in subjection to him. At present, God's rule is in a sense hidden, but at his appearing, it is to become manifest and unambiguous. It is only with the eye of faith that we believe this good news of Christ's present reign. The day of the Lord, the judgment, has in a very real sense begun. Because Christ is even now gathering and separating this is done in a way that's hidden to every eye but the eye of faith let's now move on to part two of today's sermon thy kingdom come thy will be done so we just consider the two staged nature of the coming of the kingdom We also considered how the day of the Lord of Old Testament promise includes not only the second coming of the king in power, but in a very real sense includes the present time since his first coming in weakness. And that is because through the gospel call to repentance for sin and to faith in Christ, God has visited the earth and has begun to divide humanity into those who bend the knee to his son, and those who remain in rebellion. Now I would like us briefly to consider the kingdom from another aspect. The kingdom of God should not be understood as a realm. While in English and American idiom, kingdom usually denotes a place or even a parcel of ground. For the Hebrews, the notion of a kingdom was usually more abstract and denoted less of a realm and more of a rule or a reign. The idea of kingdom here is that of the sway of a king, not the territories in his possession. So the essence of the kingdom should be thought of as those who are ruled over by this king. That is those who bend the knee to this authority those who obey the king's laws. So more often than not in the Bible, we should be thinking of the kingship of God when we are talking about the kingdom of God. Our Lord even defines greatness. Our Lord Jesus himself defines greatness in his kingdom in terms of obedience to God's law at Matthew 5.19. Our Lord says, Whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in what? The kingdom of heaven. The kingdom of heaven or the kingdom of God on our lips, brothers and sisters, must be attended by the rule, the reign, the kingship of God in our lives. Or it is hypocrisy. It is a kind of trespassing, if you will. As the king himself says in Luke 6.46, Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and do not do what I tell you? The kingdom of God, then, is accurately conceived of as the humans who obey God's laws. And yet, only those who have been saved by God's grace in Christ can hope to do so. Only those united by faith to Christ, united to the only one who ever did obey all of God's law, can do so. Are you a Christian? This is just to ask, who is your king? Note now the intimate connection between these two petitions of the Lord's Prayer. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done. Thy kingdom come, Thy will be done. Those two petitions rest side by side in the Lord's Prayer because the hallowing of God's name and the doing of His will are synonymous with the manifestation of His kingdom. That being said, that God's special kingship is made up of those who obey His laws, I must reiterate here, No one obeys his laws unless and until they are given a new heart by grace, unless they are united to the one who was obedient to all of God's laws. This leads us to the third and final section of today's sermon. Before we leave this section, let me leave you with a consideration, something to take away with you. Avoid the common misstep of thinking that the lordship of Christ is somehow disconnected from the messiahship of Christ. Christ comes to both save and to govern in the very same instant. Those whom he saves, he rules. Note how Jesus ties together his gospel call in Mark 1:14 and 15. In our sermon text today. Notice how our Lord ties together his gospel call to his proclamation of the arrival of the kingship of God. This gracious salvation of the gospel involves redemption and deliverance. But redemption and deliverance, brothers and sisters, not only from sin's guilt through justification, but also from sin's tyranny through sanctification. In other words, the deliverance that sets us free from sin's guilt sets us free from sin's dominion as well. For what purpose? In order to obey God. And so to show the Lord Jesus Christ to be not only our Savior, but truly to be our Lord. As Dr. Gaffin puts it, the faith that truly rests in Christ is restless to do his will. The faith that truly rests in Christ is restless to do his will. This kingdom our Lord proclaimed in your hearing today is described as a kingdom of holiness. It is a kingdom where righteousness dwells. So moving on now to part three. The Gospel of God. The Lord Jesus Christ begins his public ministry with these words, brothers and sisters. The time is fulfilled. The kingdom is at hand. Repent and believe the gospel. With this proclamation, this premier ambassador of God, the Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord's anointed, has initiated what we could call the diplomatic stage in the history of divine and human relations. When a great king is confronted by an enemy or by a province in open revolt, he will often first open up a more diplomatic than belligerent means of communications with his foes to give peace a chance. When nations try to first resolve their differences peacefully, this is frequently called the diplomatic stage, This good news spoken of here in our text is that although this world and its inhabitants is in rebellion against its Lord and against its sovereign, he has in the Lord Jesus Christ sent his diplomat, this divine and human mediator, as he is called, between God and rebellious man. He has sent this mediator, this diplomat, into the world to open up a way for a peaceful resolution to man's revolt against his king before God commences, full-on hostilities. Our Lord opens up that line of conciliatory communication with these words, with these terms of peace, this offer of peace. In a sense, he cries out, the particular kingship of God is about to become general. His imperial standard is about to be planted over a purified new heavens and new earth where no unclean thing will be any more permitted, where no rebellion will be further tolerated or found. Lay down your arms then, is the call of the gospel. And lay down your arms and then kiss the son, lest he be angry. And you perish in the way, for his wrath is quickly kindled. And blessed are all those who take refuge in him. Let us pray. Most gracious Heavenly Father, we praise you and thank you that you did not write off this race created in your image and likeness, created to be obedient unto you, to serve you as prophet, priest, and king. You did not destroy us outright, but instead have devised a plan of redemption. You have sent forth into this rebellious world, this great ambassador, this mediator between God and sinful man, to declare peace and the terms of peace, namely coming to him in belief and in repentance for sin. Help us, O Lord, to understand this, to apply it, and to share it, for it is good news indeed.